This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a dodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thanks. Hey, I know second service, you're not quite as familiar with Harry Clay. Harry Clay is an usher, and if you've come first service at all, Harry stands at the doors and hands out bulletins, greets everybody. Um, Harry is retiring from being an usher. He's been an usher here at Cole for over 35 years. So I don't even know how long, but at least that long. And today was his last day. So um, if you know Harry, you might consider dropping him a note and just saying thanks for your many years of service as an usher. It's it's an important ministry here, and we value ushers, greeters, all those that help make this a family. And uh, so thank you for all of you for your service. Today we begin a new study, a study in the book of Isaiah. It's a marvelous book, unique in the scriptures. It's uh, been called a mini Bible. In the Bible, there are 66 books. The Old Testament consists of 39 books, the New Testament, 27 books. The book of Isaiah consists of 66 chapters. It breaks after chapter 39. The first part is mainly about our need for a Savior, as the Old Testament has that theme. The second half, the next 27 chapters in Isaiah are 
a focus on who Christ is and then our hope of the new heavens and new earth, just like the New Testament. The New Testament begins with John the Baptist. The second half of Isaiah begins with John the Baptist. It ends, Isaiah ends with new heavens and new earth. The New Testament ends with new heavens and new earth. There are over a hundred allusions or quotations of Isaiah in the New Testament. So it shows how important this book was to Jesus and the apostles. It's more quoted than any other book other than the Psalms. But even with all that, why should we study this book? We'll be in this book for maybe a couple of years. Who knows how long God will lead us in this wonderful book of Isaiah. But why study it? Well, let me just let you in a little bit on how we pick books to study here at Cole Community Church. As you know, we like taking a book of the Bible and working it through from the beginning to the end. Why do we do that? Because uh, like Paul says in Acts twenty twenty seven, he says, I have not hesitated to seek to bring you the whole counsel of God. We believe God's called us to teach all the scriptures, to work our way through, to keep teaching more and more books that we have not taught before. And because of that, we go back and forth, typically between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Last year and for a couple of years, we were in the book of Mark, and now we're taking a bigger book in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. But I think even more to the point, the reason we're studying Isaiah is because I think it's especially fitting for our day and age, for our times. When Isaiah was prophesying, he was prophesying to a nation, the nation of Judah, which had been in existence approximately 250 years. But it was going through a time of moral decline, and it was beginning to go through a time of economic decline. More and more difficult times were coming. Isn't it interesting that our country is about 250 years old and we have begun this moral decline and an economic decline as well? There was a crisis in leadership in Judah like there is in the U.S. today. And the big question of Isaiah is how can we live out our faith? How can we be the people of God in such a difficult and declining cultural world. What does it mean to live out our faith in the grittiness and the difficulty of real life? The name Isaiah means Yahweh saves. And as we've looked at this book and thought about what is the theme of this entire book, this book of Isaiah, we believe the theme is as depicted here on the cross, our holy God is mighty to save. There's much in this book about the holiness of God and how mighty he is. But there's also this constant theme of how this mighty, holy God loves us enough to reach out to us and provide salvation for us, even in our brokenness and our fallenness. So Isaiah will help us learn how to live out our faith as we see God for who he really is, as a holy and mighty God, and as we learn to trust him to be our Savior. A key part of the book is in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll get there in a few weeks where Isaiah gets called to ministry, and there 
it, he describes how he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And, and the mighty angels were, were proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah is overwhelmed as he sees this vision of who God really is. And it changes his life. And my prayer and my hope for all of us as we approach this book over the months ahead is that we would catch a vision of God that would truly change our lives as well. So as we dig in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this marvelous book that you've placed the center of our Bibles, may you reveal yourself to us. May our eyes be open to see you with fresh eyes. And may we catch a vision of you like Isaiah did that would change our lives and cause us to come to you and say, here I am, Lord. Send me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the next two weeks, we'll be going through 1-1 through 2-4, which are really an introduction to the whole book. And it sets the stage for what God wants to tell us all the way through. It kind of summarizes some of the initial truths he wants to pass on. And our passage today, we'll be looking in particular at God's passionate heart. His passionate heart to help us see ourselves and him more clearly. So let's begin. I just want to give you a little background as, as verse 1 says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was Israel. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah prophesied for approximately 50 years or so from about 740 B.C. through the destruction of the northern kingdom when Assyria came down and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah lived through a huge decline in the nation of Judah in many ways. What they were seeing is that Judah was a religious nation. They went through the forms of religion, but they were just going through the motions. They were really not making God the center of their lives. And God's complaint partly is that as he looked at their lives, the lives of the believers didn't look much different than everybody else in society, like in America today. So God breaks in with a message to reveal his heart to them, to help them catch his heart for them so that they might see themselves and see him differently. So as we look at this passionate heart of God, what we see first at the very beginning of the book is the grief of a father, the grief of of a father. Verse 2 Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He begins by calling all of heaven and earth to bear witness. Look at what's happened with my people, God says. And it shows how both heaven and earth, all of creation, is wrapped up in how we respond to God. It's been subject to corruption, we're told in Romans chapter 8. All of creation because of our sin. And so he calls it to witness to what he's about to say to his people. And then he says in verse 2, 
Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God says, I've reared them. I brought them up. I've invested time and resources. I've created an environment so that the people can grow, the nation of Israel. They can become the people that I want to bless, that can be in relationship with me, and I can be a father, and they can be children to me. And he says, but there's a problem. They've rebelled. They've rebelled. Those of you who have grown children, most of us probably who have grown children have had a child who has rebelled. And that's heartbreaking. There may be nothing more heartbreaking as a parent than to see a child who rebels and and to have a vision for what that will mean and the consequences they will face. And how it breaks your heart. And God is revealing his deep grief and pain over his children walking away from him. I love the way this is depicted. This, As we look at this over the weeks and months ahead, and it will change over time. But you see the summary. Our holy God is mighty to save as we study the book of Isaiah. But this first section is about I need a savior and, and that picture of rebellion. I hope we get a vision of ourselves and how we tend to turn our backs on God. This, by the way, this display was put together by Steve Humpke and Terry Isaacson. I encourage you to thank them for all their work on this because it visualizes for us in a very gritty way, contemporary way, what the book of Isaiah is all about. And God's heart here as a parent who sees the consequences of his rebellious child his, the people of God, but the child doesn't. And he goes on to share his heart and say, oh, how foolish this is. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. God, in his concern and his grief, says, oh, my people, you know, a dumb ox knows its master, <laughs> knows to obey its master. And a donkey, at least even though it's stubborn, at least knows its way home to the barn. If you've ridden horses, you know what that's like. You know, they want to get home. And he says, but Israel doesn't. They don't know me, and they don't even know where home is anymore. They've wandered from me, and their hearts are going completely away. They're completely estranged from their father. It's not very flattering, is it? But what God's trying to do is help them see where their hearts really are because they think they're doing fine because they're pretty religious, as we'll see. So God is trying to help them see that things are worse off than they realize. Verse 4, he talks about how they're laden down with sin, this heavy burden, and it goes from generation to generation. And notice what he says in verse 4, the essence of sin is they have forsaken My rules. Does he say that? He doesn't. We tend to think of sin as violating a standard. And if I violate the standard, if I cross the line, then that's sin. But notice what he says. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The word for despise there means to take lightly. It's this sense of 
Well, you know, if you, if you weigh something heavily, then you take it into account and it affects the choices you make. But if you take something lightly, you know, there's certain people that if they say something bad about you, it really hurts because you care about them. You give weight to what they say. But there's a lot of people who might say something about you. you go, I don't care what they think. And that's what despising is, not caring what the person thinks or what they say. And he says, that's my people. That's what breaks my heart is that I've raised them up. I've poured my life into them. I've invested so much into them. And they treat me like I don't even matter in their lives. And it breaks his heart. So the cry of the father in verse 5, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. The heart of the father here cries out to Israel and he says, Why won't you see how desperate your situation is and how much you need me? It's like going to the doctor and you've got this really bad rash and you say, uh, doctor, you know, I've got this rash. Can you give me some lotion to, uh, to make it stop irritating me? It's kind of itchy. It kind of bothers me. And the doctor says, um, you know, that's not a rash. That's melanoma. And in fact, it's spreading all over your body. And we have to take drastic measures because if we don't, if you don't take drastic therapy, chemotherapy, everything we can throw at it, you are not going to survive. And I think what he's saying is we can't tend to come to God that way and we tend to think, God, can you kind of fine tune my life a little bit? You know, I want to submit certain things to you, but, but I know my problem's not too bad. I'm really doing pretty well, right, God? And he says, let me give you a diagnosis. Everything you do, God says, is tainted with sin. From the sole of your foot to the head, there's open sores. And you don't see it. But if you're willing to come to me, I will bring healing to your life. But you've got to come to me and depend on me and live your life in relationship with me. And we say, no, no, just give me some lotion and I'll go my way. But God loves us too much to let us go. You see, we're far more sinful than we've ever admitted. And so part of what God is saying to Israel and what he's saying to you and, and me this morning is, are you willing to listen to my diagnosis? Because I don't believe we'll ever catch a glimpse of the holiness and wonder of God and we'll never catch really the heart of his love for us as a loving father until we accept the fact that we are a much bigger mess than we've ever realized. And once we accept that diagnosis, then we're ready to come to him and let him, as the great physician, begin to heal us. So you see in these first verses, God's heart, his passionate heart as a father who desperately wants relationship with us and wants us to see how much we need him every moment of every day, every one of us. How rebellious our hearts really are. 
How we look to other things for life other than God over and over and over again. And if we're willing to admit it, then we're on the path to life. So he reveals his passionate heart of grief as a father. Secondly, he reveals to us what he hates. What God hates. You see, this is kind of shocking, isn't it? God hates. Let's see what he hates. Verse 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Not very flattering. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for a variety of sins. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What does God hate? Religion. God says, I hate all the sacrifices and festivals. They're an abomination to me. All the religious practices, even keeping the Sabbath, my soul hates them. Now, isn't that shocking? Wait a minute, God. Didn't you command all these in the Old Testament? Absolutely. He did. He commanded that we keep all of these, that his people keep them. So why this extreme, passionate language? Why hate? Why is God so disgusted with them? Well, there's a couple of hints. Verse 13, where he says, they're an abomination. I cannot endure iniquity along with all these religious practices. At the end of verse 15, your hands are full of blood. He's saying there's, there's something wrong. There's, there's sin mixed in with your motivation, with your heart, and the practices you have that are unhealthy, that are showing that the religion, all this religiosity isn't doing anything for you. Ray Ortland, the com, in his commentary, says this, Are hands bloody? Jesus said that murder can take many forms, including anger, cutting words, Unresolved relational tension, character assassination, backstabbing, and dividing walls of hostility at a church create a life-depleting social atmosphere rather than the life-enriching environment God wants. Are our hands bloody? Maybe more than we thought. What he's saying is that And what God's upset about is that they were using these rituals as an excuse not to change. As long as I'm religious, then I can hang on to these other things that are unhealthy. As long as I pray to prayer to become a Christian, to use a contemporary example, or I went to church or I had my quiet time, then God is obligated to forgive me. 
And I can basically live as I want within bounds, of course. But I can basically choose to hang on to certain sins and live the way I want, like those who think in certain uh, traditions that I can party Saturday night and go to confession Sunday morning and everything's fine. Well, we, in maybe a more evangelical circles, don't we do the same thing where we think, well, it, it kind of counterbalances. If I do certain things, then God's obligated to forgive me because I'm, I did my religious part. And how does God feel about it when we do that? He hates it. And I think he also hates it when, and this happens in all religions, right? Uh, a Muslim who, who comes and says, okay, I'll follow these rules, and if I follow these rules, then you are obligated to bless me, God. You see, it becomes a contract. Or a Mormon who responds the same way. Or a Pharisee in Jesus' day. Or many of us, if not all of us at times as Christians today, who have an idea, a sense that if I do A, B, C, God, then you are obligated to come through and make my life better. Somehow bless me. We try to make a contract with God. And the commentator John Oswald says this about that. What this passage is talking about is very relevant to us today. It's a human tendency to use religious behavior as a means of manipulating God for our own benefit. Around the world, this is the function of ritual because it's believed, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously, that by performing such actions, we can force God to do certain things. So for a Muslim, if I keep the five pillars, then hopefully God will bless me. For us, if I keep my quiet time, if I go to church, if I serve in some capacity, if I teach Sunday school, then I expect God to have my life go well. I know for me, early in my Christian life, as I was struggling with, okay, I need to have a quiet time, and I would be diligent, I would be religious about having my quiet time every day. And if I missed, I'd feel real guilty, but... I remember going through a time several years after I came to Christ where I was really diligent about having my quiet time, doing going to church, doing those things. But I was personally going through a really difficult time of depression and relationships were struggling. And I remember getting really angry at God. Because God wasn't doing his part. I was doing my part, but he wasn't doing his And I think most of us at times in our Christian faith feel that way. John Oswald goes on to say more about that. He says, there's no question that we today are as guilty of trying to use religious behavior to manipulate God as any Israelite was. How easy it is to think that when we go to church regularly, read the Bible, pray, tithe, and don't engage in substance abuse, God somehow owes us something. Moreover, How easy it is to think that when we've done all these things, God could hardly expect more of us. (laughs) Look at all the heathen around us who don't even do those things. God should be grateful to have such faithful servants as us, we think. Then when difficulties come to us, we're angry at God, accusing him of being unfair. 
after all we've done for him. What does God think of that attitude? He hates it. He hates it. You see, he hates it because all the rituals, all the sacrifices that he commanded and the things we do are all meant to be used to draw us close to God, to deepen our understanding of him and to deepen our understanding of his grace. And so we depend on him and trust him more with our lives. But when religion is used in these other ways, it actually separates us from God. It keeps us from trusting him because we're trusting in our own activity rather than him. And it breaks his heart and he hates it. And he simply won't play that game. So as God goes on to reveal his heart, he's revealed the grief of a father. And then he's revealed what he hates. And now he reveals what he longs for for us. In these next few verses, and I want to highlight four things that I believe he longs for for us. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. What he longs for for us, first of all, is he longs for us to be free of sin. He longs for us to let go of sin, to stop coddling our selfishness and our self-centeredness, keeping self on the throne and keeping God over here, kind of our religious friends, so we feel okay about ourselves. He wants to be on the throne. So he wants us to let go of those areas in our hearts, those dark corners, those closets in the home of our lives where we shut the door and it's dark in there and we turn on the light out here and see, we're doing well. We just keep the closet door closed because we don't want to admit what's really going on in our lives. Those dark corners we don't want to give up, those secret sins, the resentment, the anger, the lust, the pornography, the gossip, and on and on. And God's longing for us is that we be free of those things because he knows how they destroy our lives and they destroy our relationships. They keep us from trusting God with our whole hearts. So his challenge is, please wash, be clean, give those up, come and get help, come confess your sins to one another so you can be free. James tells us that's how we get free is we we come clean. We confess them to God and to one another and we get help in the body of Christ to begin to grow because God so longs for us to be whole and not have these areas that continue to hold us back. Secondly, what God longs for is that we would begin to live out love and live out love in a way where we really seek justice. Verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That last little phrase, plead the widow's cause. The widows were very helpless in their culture, in their society. There was no one to fight for them. And the word he uses is actually fight. Fight for the widow. Defend her. She's defenseless. Seek justice for those who don't receive it in our world. You see, more than being religious, 
God wants us to love him and love others, to put ourselves on the line for the needy around us. I, just this last week, I, I read an article, saw a video about a church in Georgia called Heartsong Church, I believe. And, and they found out, the pastor found out that they were putting in an Islamic center across the street with several buildings, several things going on. And he didn't really know any Muslims, but he was thinking, wow, this is kind of scary. And he prayed and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What the Lord led him to do is he ended up making a sign, put it out in front of his church. And he said, Heartsong Church welcomes our Muslim friends to the neighborhood. Now, some people in his church didn't like it. They actually left. But a lot of them began to embrace it. And when they moved in across the street, they began to look for ways to build relationships and to get to know them and to have um, relationship in different ways. They had Thanksgiving dinners. They had uh, different events that they did together. And somebody asked, they said, well, that's kind of scary. Have, have any of your people converted to Islam? Anything like that happened? He said, no. No, in fact, it strengthened the faith of our people as they've reached out in love. Isn't it interesting that there's an Islamic center going in about a block from here that will be opening soon? That we've begun building relationships that through Nick and Laura Armstrong, we've had a Thanksgiving feast with many of them here at Cole last year, and we're going to do it again this year. And we're building relationships. We've had peace feasts. And I believe that's part of what God calls us to do because they are people who are in many ways rejected in our culture. And do they need Christ? Absolutely. But how are they going to come to know Jesus if they don't rub shoulders with people who know him and trust him? God wants us to reach out in love and especially to those who are marginalized in society. Third, what God longs for is for us to engage with him. Notice verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Uh, reason together is not a really great translation. The word really means argue, <laughs> to reprove, to fight it out. God says, come and engage with me. Don't stay away from me because maybe you're afraid or because you have doubts or because you're angry at me because I haven't been the kind of God you thought I should be or whatever. Don't stay away, but come and let us argue this out together. Let's engage. I can handle that, God says. You'll never know me, God says. Unless you bring your questions, your doubts, your hurts, your wounds, your traumas to me and we learn to engage. You see, God loves us so much. He, he can handle it and he just wants relationship. And he knows that if we engage with him honestly and we come to him with our doubts and our questions and our anger and our struggles, that we will eventually catch, catch a glimpse of how incredible his love is for us. But we'll never learn that if we keep our distance. 
So what does God long for? For us to engage honestly with him. And then fourth, he longs for us to constantly repent. What do I mean? Verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He says, yeah, I know you're a mess. I know everything's stained and you can't wash it out. But if you're honest about how messed up you are, and you'll come to me, I guarantee you, I will cleanse you. I will wash you. I will set you free. I will forgive your sins, and I will change your heart. So please, what God longs for, he says, is to constantly repent, that we would come to him every moment of every day and have an attitude of, Lord, I need you. I need your forgiveness today because I know everything I do is tainted. There's nothing I do that's pure. But thank you that you've made provision for that and that you want to make me clean. So that we come to him not just for a few band-aids or a little bit of lotion so we feel a little better, but that we allow him to do that deep cleaning of our hearts and souls as we come into his presence and admit how desperately we need him and he will do it. You see, God longs to bless us. He's a loving father that cares deeply about us and longs for us to be holy, created us for relationship with him. And to the extent that we use him to get what we want rather than trust him for life and forgiveness every moment, to that extent, he grieves because he knows we're missing out. So, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you as we go through this study in Isaiah to face the reality of your need for God in a deeper way than perhaps you ever have. Agree with this diagnosis that you're a mess, that you are a rebel and you need him every moment to begin to let go of sin and, and then begin in obedience to reach out to others in love, but especially the hurting and needy and the marginalized in our society and then come constantly to him, arguing it out, receiving his forgiveness, experiencing life. Brothers and sisters, you have a heavenly father who passionately loves you. So let's learn to trust him more, shall we? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this glimpse into your heart. Oh, Lord, may we let go of our false ideas about who you are and begin to see you for who you really are in your passionate love for us. And may the things that keep us from trusting you, may we begin to let those go. And may we come to you and find life and forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.